You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. Our passage this morning is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Thanks, Taylor. Before we begin our study today, let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask God to be with us in this time together. Father, we approach you now and we ask for your blessing. Lord, we need your promises, we need your truth, and we need the freedom and the grace of the gospel to just overwhelm us today. Some of us come in here burdened with shame and with guilt and a sense of condemnation. We ask, God, that you would lift that burden. Some of us come in here, God, looking for satisfaction and fullness of life and for joy in life. God, we ask that you'd give us that today. Some of us come in here, God, hungry and thirsting, longing for you. God, meet us where we are at and quench our thirst. And God, I pray that you'd make us excited again about the gospel, that you would return us to our first love, that is the gospel, that you would cause us to worship you today because of the gospel, or let us never get over the fact that you've died for us in Jesus that we're forgiven and we have a new life. And so God, bless your people and glorify yourself. Be with us and help me preach this word, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, guys. My name is Joey. I am one of the pastors here at Citizens Church, uh, and we are continuing our study through John's gospel. So if you have your Bibles, we're in John chapter 14. Go ahead and turn there with me. And uh, we're in what's called what commentators and theologians throughout time have called the final discourse. This is Jesus' final speech before he makes his way to the Roman cross. And if you read chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, it's mostly a running monologue of Jesus just teaching his disciples before he goes the way of the cross. And the purpose of this entire speech, these words of Jesus, this last speech of Jesus is to embolden us, the disciples, you and I, to strengthen our hearts so we can make our way through life, 
through this world with courage, confidence, and hope, given the fact that Jesus is absent. He's no longer with us. He's going to die, be resurrected, and ascend to the Father. He'll send His Spirit so we're not alone, but we are without Him. And so He wants to embolden our hearts with confidence and hope as we walk in this world. And so He begins this final speech in chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, with this vision for our future. Are you ready for this? Here's what waits for us, what awaits us. He says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. And the word there for troubled is deep grief. Don't be sad. Don't don't give way to grief and darkness. Believe in God. He says, believe also in me. So whatever words, whatever trust and hope you put in God's words, put in my words I'm about to say. So what's his words? What does he promise us? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be and you know the way to where I am going. The promise here of Jesus is that we look forward to a family reunion, that all of us together who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved will be reunited. We will be together in eternal dwellings with Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, your happiest memories of Christmas morning, family together, there's cheery, warm times. That's just a passing shadow of the reality that awaits us. That's the promise that Jesus is giving us here, a great family reunion. Imagine all of those who have gone before you, who have made a difference in your life, who have walked with you as you walk with Jesus, who prayed for you, put up with you, sacrificed for you, been patient with you. All of those who've gone before you will welcome you into glory. And the same goes for all who follow you, all those you've prayed for and sacrificed for and poured out your life for. You will welcome them into eternal glory. John Bunyan, at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian and Hopeful are making their way into heaven, he writes this line, it just has stuck with me since I've read it, because this is Jesus' vision for our destiny, what awaits us. There, he says, there you shall enjoy your friends again that have gone before you, and there you shall with joy receive even every one that follows into the holy place after you. Wow. We will be together again in glory. It's an amazing homecoming. That's what's promised to us. And so this is what prompts Thomas now to ask in verse 5 this question. Lord, we do not know where you are going. (laughs) That's a statement of fear. We're alone. We don't know where you're going. What are we going to do without you? And he says, how can we know the way? There's a question of doubt. How are we going to make our way there? I'm uncertain. How are we going to know that we will be with you there in that family reunion? And so this whole entire teaching today, Jesus' famous claim here, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's a response to our feelings of uncertainty. Are we really going to make it there to the golden shores together? Are we really going to be okay? Is that even real? Is that really a promise that we can latch on to? Jesus wants to give us assurance that it's all real, that we will be together again. All who've gone before and all who come after will be with him in a family reunion and glory. And so our outline today 
is pretty simple. My job is pretty simple this week. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Those are our three points today, okay, that we're going to go through. But before we go ahead and break those down and teach those, I want to give some first initial just observations for the sake of interpreting the, this claim correctly. Okay, so I'll read it again. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the difficulty of interpreting this claim is this. Are these ideas all the same? Way, truth, and life is all just different ways of saying the exact same thing? Or are these totally different ideas that are unrelated? Or is one of these three like the primary one that the other two are subordinate to? How we make sense of, of, what this, of what this means and how it gives us assurance that we're going to, to be in glory. I think the mystery is solved if you just keep on reading verses 7 through 11. Jesus sort of expands on these ideas as he keeps on talking. And so what we're going to do as we focus on Jesus the way, Jesus the truth, Jesus the life, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 and see how they inform that claim. So here's what I think, okay? I think this claim contains three unique ideas about Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. They're not all the same thing. They're different ideas, but they are interdependent. They have a relationship, a dynamic relationship with one another. And verses 7 through 11 expand on those ideas to help us understand it. One other thing worth pointing out before we dig in, you'll notice that in front of each word, you see the word the. Pretty important word. Jesus is not a way, he is not a truth, he is not one of the options for life, he is the way, the truth, the life. He is our only hope, he is our only hope. These are ideas that are exclusive to Jesus. No one else can say this, no one else has this. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through Jesus. So these ideas show us why Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. These words help us trust that Jesus is the only hope that we have of coming to the Father now and in the age to come. So if we want assurance that we are homebound for glory, we need to understand this claim and believe this claim and embrace this claim. So first, Jesus is the way. What does that mean? He is the way to the Father. This refers to his death on the cross. Jesus is the way. It's a reference to the cross. We know this because keep on reading in verse 7. It says this, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So Jesus, he demonstrates who the Father is. He reveals who the Father is. We'll talk about that more later. But then look at this important uh, turning of the phrase. He says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So you've seen him before, Thomas, okay? You've seen him all along. But from now on, you are going to get a crystal clear, full and vivid demonstration, communication, revelation of who exactly the Father is through Jesus. So what does from now on reference then? It means everything that's about to happen, primarily the cross, the cross that he's walking towards right now, making his way towards Calvary. In the cross, then, is where we get the full, fullest glimpse into who God is. 
So when Jesus says that he is the way, in his mind, he's thinking about the cross. Jesus is the way to the Father because of what the cross reveals about the Father, meaning you need to understand what the cross is, that event, what it communicates about God if you are to have a relationship with God. He is the way to the Father. The cross is necessary to know the Father. If you have no cross, you have no relationship with God. So we must accept and believe in what the cross reveals about the Father. Otherwise, we cannot come to him because we have then, if, if we don't, if we reject the cross, we have rejected the clearest revelation of who the Father is. So here's the question then. What does the cross reveal about the Father that we have to embrace? Why is the cross so necessary for us to embrace? Here's why. Here's what it reveals about the Father. It reveals both his uncompromising holiness and his tremendous humility. It reveals his severe justice and his astonishing mercy. It reveals the fullness, the full complexity of who God is and the implication then, okay, if you haven't noticed, it's pretty technical and logical today, so I hope you drink your coffee, okay? The implication then, if God is, if God has divine wrath, if he is severely just, yet merciful and kind and gracious, and that's what the cross demonstrates, then what does that say about us? That we are not holy, that we are on the wrong side of that divine justice, that we needed his grace and we needed his mercy. In other words, what the cross reveals is this. We need saved from God, by God. We need forgiveness from God, by God. That's what the cross reveals about the Father. Now, you may not like this idea. You may not like all this talk of like justice, judgment, divine wrath, death on the cross. You may not like these things at all because you think to yourself, I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm a pretty good person overall. I do good things. But you have to understand this, that we are, myself, all of us included, we are we're pretty bad at being good. We are. I mean, we're terrible at being good, each one of us. It's interesting to think about this, uh, but right now we're living in a time of extreme moralism. Like there's a moral movement happening across, across our culture right now. Now you might think to yourself, that doesn't sound right because much of the causes and ideology today and conversations and uh, things that people champion today, we would say don't integrate with God's moral vision for life. They disagree with what we believe God commands us to do and champion. But here's the question. Why is everybody we know attaching themselves to some cause to champion? Like everybody has that ax to grind, something they just give themselves to. Like there, there's this moral phenomenon happening across our country right now where everybody wants to be seen and proven as moral. What's, what's that all about? This phenomenon proves that everybody wants to be righteous. Everybody, everybody wants to be seen as righteous. And not only that, but have that righteousness vindicated by the approval of my tribe and also by the 
weakness or stupidity of like the other tribe. There's this massive self-righteous phenomenon happening in our day. But here's the truth, and tell me this isn't, this isn't the case. Under the surface, we know we're not what we present ourselves to be. We know that deep down that we have this unshakable guilt, that we are never going to be righteous enough, and we know it. And so what do we do with this nagging guilt? We silence our conscience with zeal for a cause. We bolster our self-righteousness by passing judgment on everyone else's moral failures. We minimize the recognition of our guilt by pointing at everyone else's mistakes and everybody else's sins. And we offer those up to God and we offer those up to everybody else so we can stand in the background and not be seen and noticed for who we really are. Now here's, let's just follow this train of logic. The result of our self-righteousness, this need to be vindicated, this need to be better, this need to be moral enough, the result is what? What's happened? The result is divided, fractured society where everybody is more concerned about being seen as righteous than actually producing a just society where people are lifted up and helped. Our moral championing is more about us feeling better about ourselves than helping somebody else out. Our morality, instead of creating lasting, sustainable flourishing, has left people more isolated, more angry, more fragile, more self-centered than ever, ever before. And so if we're just going to call it for what it is, I would say we're guilty. We have hurt more than we've helped. We live for self more than others. We've tarnished God's good design for life and community in the name of justifying ourselves. We have used the potential of his world and his gifts for our own sake. Romans 3 describes it like this. Here's how the Bible puts it. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here's the question that the cross invites us to answer. How, here's a really important question, how can a holy God remain holy while letting the guilty go unpunished? How can that be the case? How can God remain just while letting us go unpunished? In the cross, the cross, God remains holy while removing our guilt. Because in an act of complete unmerited favor, God sends Jesus to die in our place. And so by dying in our place, God's wrath is satisfied and our sin is atoned for and we are credited the righteousness of Jesus as he takes on him our sin and guilt. So now, instead of standing before God guilty and at enmity with him, we stand before God righteous and reconciled. Now, this shouldn't surprise any of us. This is the story of the entire Bible. For Exodus to occur, a lamb's blood needed to be covered every doorpost. For sin to be removed, a lamb's blood had to be spilled on the altar. Life has always been the cost of forgiveness, the cost of atonement. And now in Jesus, the Lamb of God, perfect and full and final atonement has taken place. 
So all that talk about guilt and judgment and that we, you know, we've messed it up, it's absolutely true. But just as true is his mercy is more. That he has poured out his just wrath on Christ instead of us and given to us Christ's blameless purity. Totally unmerited. Totally a gift. Romans 3 continues and summarizes it like this. We've all sinned, but are justified through redemption in Christ. He's the propitiation for our sins. So that verse 26 is that God might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God remains just, yet also at the same time justifies us who have put our faith in Jesus. So look, If you want God to just look the other way and not care about sin, not care about injustice, not care about our guilt, then you're betraying both logic and conscience. If you want God to just look the other way, you're trying to fashion a God who is not just, who is not good, who does not have integrity, and who is not honest. And if you aren't willing to admit that you are guilty and need forgiveness from God, then you are rejecting God for who he is. You're rejecting his stunning mercy in Jesus. You are saying that your morality and your righteousness can somehow rival God's and meet his pound for pound. You are rejecting the way, the cross, the full, final expression of all that God is. So how can a God remain holy? How can God remain holy and yet let us go unpunished? You can either respond and say, be less holy, which is a lame God, not worthy worthy of our worship, not worthy of our devotion, who's full of compromises. Or you can say, I'm good enough. I don't need that, which we all know. It's self-evident. If we're just honest with ourselves, we know that's not true. Or you can respond with faith in Jesus. He is the way. Jesus in my place. If Christianity... Okay, most of us are Christians in here. Christianity, if it's anything at all, it's Christ in my place. Christ in my place. Now, let me tell you, if you've embraced this, that Jesus is the way, if you've embraced this, why this is such good news for you. Because it means you don't have to carry around shame anymore. You don't need to carry around guilt anymore. You don't need to carry around those self-loathing thoughts anymore. You don't need to do that because fear, all that's fear. Fear has to do with judgment. And our sin has already been judged in Jesus instead of us. And we've been given his perfect righteousness. So listen, there's no reason for any of us who have called upon Jesus to be our Savior, to carry around guilt, to carry around shame, to have self-loathing like thoughts and tendencies in our hearts and in our minds because the penalty for our sin has already been paid. So why carry around the penalty any longer? It's already been absolved. It's already been expunged. It's been taken care of. So instead of carrying around guilt and shame, you can carry around confidence and joy and peace because Jesus has credited to you as a gift his pure, spotless righteousness. That's who you are now. I'm telling you, we have like this identity crisis in the American church where we walk around with our heads hanging low because of all the stuff we've done, all the mistakes we've made, all the regrets that we have. That's not God's will for his children. 
We should be walking around our held head up, our held head, our head held high, joyful, confident, because our emotions and our state of being, it's not determined by my performance or what I've done, or how good I've been. It's been determined by Jesus's performance, how good he was, how good he is, and what he's done for me. That's who I am now. That's the ground I stand on. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, for our sake he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Do you believe that? That's incredible. Like we are the righteousness of God. That's what's been given to each of us. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 1.18, come now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's what the cross has achieved for us. It upholds God's justice, absolutely, but it also dispenses to us incredible mercy. And so Jesus is the way. He reveals to us who the Father is. Let me just say one other application of the gospel. One other application, if you believe this, if you believe Jesus is the way. You don't need to strive anymore. No more striving to try to be somebody, to try to be good enough, to try to present yourself to everybody who's watching that you're some upstanding, impressive, have-it-all-together perfect person. Like the burnout, the weariness and exhaustion of trying to pretend to be perfect, it can end. The charade can end. We don't need to be like that because we're seen as the very righteousness of Jesus. No amount of success, no amount of improvement, no amount of perfection will ever make you feel as if you're enough. Only Jesus can do that. Galatians 3 says that all who rely on works of the law, meaning I'm going to do moral things, I'm going to perform moral things, I'm going to be good enough to try to achieve my righteousness. For all who do that, it says all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The only thing that awaits for us in a life of pretending we're perfect is just the existence of, of feeling like we're cursed, just exhausted and weary to the bone. So instead of burning yourself out, trying to ease your conscience, here's what you do. You just look to Christ, who's done all of the work already, and you take on his perfect resume and stop trying to improve your own. Hebrews 4.10, one more verse, says this, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That is what Jesus, the way to the Father, gifts to you and I. Rest. The striving can stop. The pretending can stop because we are at rest in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the way to the Father. You have to believe it because in the cross, he reveals the fullness of who the Father is, that God is holy but loving and that we are sinful yet dearly loved. So you need to believe that. But you also need to believe that Jesus is the truth. He's the way and the truth. Now, there are two ways to understand the word truth, especially in John's gospel. It's a very dense word. So first, truth means revelation or disclosure. Jesus reveals who the Father is in his living, in his being, in his doing, in his teaching. That's what he says in verses 8 through 10. Read it with me. Philip said to him, Lord, 
Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Now listen here. Whoever has seen me in my living, in my doing, in my being, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words, the teachings that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So what Jesus is saying here is he reveals the Father, the truth of the Father, who the Father is, what the Father expects, what he demands, what he's passionate about, his character, who he is in his teachings, in his, in his living, in his doing. The Old Testament calls this the law of God, we have the law of God written on our heart, but there is no clearer revelation of the truth of God, what he expects of us, what he demands of us, than in the life and in the teachings of Jesus. He shows us who God is and the life that God expects. The other way to understand truth in John's gospel is that Jesus shows us reality. That's another way to understand truth. Here's what I mean by that. When we adopt God's design for life, which is a reflection of his own character, we thrive. When we oppose it, though, we struggle because reality is not what we make of it. Reality is set in place by God and Jesus' words and Jesus' life. It shows us what kind of life shows up to reality and flourishes in reality. Jesus, as the truth, he's inviting us into life as it should be. He shows us what life is as it should be. So there's this preset design to the world. When we choose to live according to the truth that is revealed in Jesus, we then cut with the grain of reality and things go well. But when we oppose the truth, when we choose to live in an illusion of our own making, no matter what our illusions will not change reality. So as long as we reject Jesus as the truth, we'll constantly run into the brick wall that is reality and wonder why we're not happy, why things aren't working out, why things aren't what you thought they would be. Jesus shows us the life that integrates with reality and flourishes within it. That's what it means to live in the truth and to accept Jesus as the truth. His commands, his teachings, his definitions, his standards, and his way of living and being and doing. It's all a reflection of God's character that he reveals. He's inviting us to live in the truth, to step into reality and flourish within it. Now look, I know when I say truth that that sometimes is labeled as an oppressive word, a traditional word, or some people would respond and say that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, that's okay, it all works out for us as long as you're happy, as long as you don't hurt anybody. But here's, here's the, the tricky thing when we talk about truth being yours and truth being mine, and we all just agree to disagree. There is no such thing as a perspective of life or philosophy on life or worldview or your truth and my truth, a set of truth that doesn't have absolutes, that doesn't have limitations, that doesn't have lines in the sand. See, we prefer versions of truth that give us freedom, autonomy. We can do whatever we want, however we want. But that isn't real. There's no such thing as freedom without limits. Let me give you an example. If you choose to be single and just live it up and have fun and never settle down, you are not free to have a deep relationship where you're known and loved by a spouse, right? There's always a trade-off. 
any decision you make, any worldview you adopt, there's always going to be limits and restrictions. And so this idea that I don't want truth that's absolute, that has definitions and standards, it's, that's an illusion. It doesn't exist because any way of life has a criteria that has definitions and limitations. So the wrong, the wrong question to ask is, which truth can I adopt that's going to give me the most freedom? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is which truth system, which way of life actually makes my life congruent with reality, actually satisfies the deeper longings within my soul. That way of life, that set of truth is the way to go, and it's revealed in Jesus. It's offered in Jesus. He is the truth, and when we embrace the truth, we make our way to the Father. Now, this ties in nicely with Jesus being the way. Here's, here's what I mean by that. If you make Jesus the way, okay, accept his atonement, accept his life, accept his death in your place, then what's going to happen? It's going to catapult you just naturally to begin living in the truth. Like the, the declaration from above, from heaven, that you are righteous, that you are forgiven, that you are pure in Jesus you're going to begin to become that in your, in your living and in your doing. Before long, you'll begin living in the truth. The law of God, it's not meant to save us. It's meant to lead us to the fact that we need a Savior. But when we meet the Savior and are saved, then the law, it becomes a helpful benchmark, a helpful, helpful guidepost to showing us whether or not I am living in the truth, whether or not I really have been overwhelmed and changed by the power of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. And that's what he reveals about the Father, that God's character becomes a reflection of our life. That's what he expects of us. So let me just say this then. If you're a Christian, your life should be commendable. There should be a nobility and a virtue to your life that is really, really attractive because you've made Jesus the way. And so now you've made him the truth and your life reflects that. And there's just a moral power and a substance to your life that the watching world observes about you and is attracted to. Like I know we love grace, and all of us don't have what it takes to impress God. We all know that. We talk about grace all the time, and we should. God dispenses his grace and shows us grace. That's amazing and awesome. That's what we rely on to have standing before God. But that grace, we shouldn't also be shy about the fact that it should produce character. It should produce a commendable life in us that lives and thrives within the truth that is revealed in Jesus. Our righteousness in Christ, Christ should produce right living. Jesus, he is the way through his atoning death. And if you believe it, you also agree that Jesus is the truth. But lastly, Jesus is the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now remember, this whole entire teaching, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, it's in response to the, to the disturbance within us, will we make it home? Will we be at that great family reunion in the end? I need assurance that I'm going to make it till then and it's going to be there when I come to an end. Jesus says, I am the life. 
This refers to his resurrection. He's saying the resurrection life that's within me, I'm going to send into your dead, decomposed body and bring you back to life. Look at verse 11. Jesus says this, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So how do we know that Jesus represents the Father perfectly, is stamped with God's approval, is validated by the Father as God's chosen Messiah? He says this, believe on account of the works themselves. So he's now transitioning away from his teachings to his miracles. He's saying, look at all I've done. That's unexplainable. Look at the power that I've demonstrated in my signs and miracles. And there is no greater miracle, no greater attestation to Jesus being God's Messiah than when Jesus is raised from the dead by the Father. That's the greatest demonstration of the power of life that Jesus has within himself, the resource of infinite life that he carries underneath his authority as king over the world. So now by putting our faith in Jesus as the way and as the truth, now we will share in his life. This is why the New Testament says that he is the firstborn among the dead, that he is the first fruits of the harvest. As Jesus has gone, so will we. He's trailblazing the way towards resurrection life, and we follow him, and he's inviting us into it because he is the life. And this is really important because if, we, if Jesus isn't the life, and if we don't believe that Jesus is the life, then what good are the first two? Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, but if we, we die and that's just it, then what good is any of that? That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the resurrection never occurred, there's no resurrection life waiting for us. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus never resurrected, and there's no resurrection life for us, we're the most to be pitied of them all. Because we should just be going out in the world and having fun and living for self and having this hedonistic, pleasure-filled life. Don't die to self. Don't sacrifice for others. Don't go out of your way and inconvenience yourself. Live for yourself because this is the one trip around the block we have unless there actually is life to come, unless there actually is accountability and judgment and resurrection life for those who've called upon Jesus. So by receiving Jesus as the way and as the truth, he will bring us home and finish what he has started. So he's the way, the truth, and the life. Now, you're here. You may be on the fence about Jesus. Let me just say, there is salvation nowhere else. I think it's pretty clear by now that we run out of options for someone to put our trust in, for someone to save us, for someone to be the answer to the deepest longings of our soul. There is no other Savior. This is it. This is Him. He is the way, the truth, the life. Listen, if you're here on the fence about Jesus, we all have these deep longings within us, don't we? One of them is the longing to return home, to be home again, to have a great homecoming, to live forever. Any desire you have deep within your soul, the, the, the desire for companionship, the desire for, for being known and loved, the desire for, for deep satisfaction and joy, the, the desire for sex, the desire for pleasure, the desire for a good meal, anything that we carry within our body, this world does not fulfill. So you know what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory? He says, that must only mean I was meant for another world. That nothing in this world, in this present age, 
was meant to actually fulfill me. It's not a conspiracy against you. God put those desires in you to lead you to him because only he can fulfill them. Listen, those on the fence about Jesus, you were made by God for God. That's why nothing here satisfies. By God, for God, and here's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. You won't find hope and life and answers anywhere else. And so say yes to Jesus. Don't put off the best decision of your life, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, which is most of you, can I tell you what my greatest fear has been all week in in preparing this sermon? That once you found out what we're reading, the way, the truth, and the life, that your eyes would gloss over and you'd say, I've heard this before. I believed the, the cross, Jesus is the truth, the way to the Father, the exclusivity of Jesus, there's no other way but Jesus. I believed all that when I first began. My greatest fear is that that would just be lost on you because you've heard it all before. You know what God says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? He says, return to your first love. Don't forget your first love. C.S. Lewis in another book called uh, The Abolition of Man there's this conversation happening between an unbeliever and a believer. This unbeliever says, I don't believe those things. Those things aren't for me. And the believer says, oh, I would just wish that you'd become a, like a child again. Return to that childlike faith. And that's what, that's what we need to do today. To return to just the innocent and pure wonder of the gospel. Like the fact that we've been saved and we've been forgiven And there is no penalty hanging over our heads anymore. And we can actually live life with a great sense of freedom and a clear conscience because there's nothing between us and God but love. That's what this has earned for us. And so listen, we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not just Christianity 101. It's 201, 301, 401, PhD. It gets us to the end. The gospel is what gets us to the great reunion. So return to your first love. Return to being a child again. Receive the gospel again and again, all over again, like a child receives Christmas morning. You're forgiven. You're changed. You never need to fear death again because when you die, you'll be more alive than you ever have been before. We have tremendous things. We have tremendous things in the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for sending Jesus to show us who you are, to reveal who you are, to invite us into union with you, to reconcile relationship with you. And Father, we just praise you for your word that it tells us about you. It gives us guidance and direction and now reveals everything we need to know about you. And so Lord, I pray that as we enter into this time of celebrating now the Lord's Supper, remembering your son, all that he has done for us, that you would stir in our hearts conviction over what we need to repent of, what we need to flee from, that you'd also stir in our hearts the assurance that we have in you, that we're forgiven, that we've been given mercy, that we have a clean start every day because of the righteousness of Jesus that is now our very identity. So Lord, we love you, but you love us more, and we thank you for your love. We say these things and ask these things in the name of Jesus. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.